when I go to bed every night, like, did I do something that day? Even if I did do something that day, was it amazing? Did the people I hung out with, do I know that they went home with a good feeling in themselves? I don't want legacy to mean that I have to write this book or books before I die. It's kind of like a spirit that you carry with you that just kind of keeps going and surrounds and defines you. Welcome to Legacy, a show about aging with purpose. I'm your host, Mariana Thomas. Today, I'm speaking with Henry Pickovec, the head of editorial operations at TechCrunch. Henry has significant experience working in both online and print publications. He's a respected newsroom leader who has a pulse on the biggest technology trends shaping our future. But Henry had a difficult childhood and faced a lot of challenges many children don't have to deal with. He's a trans man, and we'll start out our conversation discussing how growing up in the 1970s shaped who he is today. Well, tell me a little bit, just going way back, who were some early influences on you? When I was a kid, I played sports. Sports was my community. I have people, I mean, we'll probably get into this later and we'll figure that out, but like, I didn't have idols per se, but I know that I have had people in my life along the way who it's almost like they were not obviously placed there for me, but like they were there. And whether or not I realized what and why they were there, I can look back and know that they kept me in line, that I was kept in line by them. Hmm. I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit later, but I want to go back to that idea of sports. What about sports made you feel like it kind of charted a path that like, you know, it left a memory for you? My mom put me in sports. The first time I played, I was five years old. I played t-ball. And obviously sports gives you this social outlet, right? And it moves your body literally. But it surrounded me from a very early age with teams. I played team sports, right? So basketball, baseball. And it surrounded me from a very early age about teamwork, about leading a team, about leadership qualities, about mentorship, about encouragement, encouraging others to do their best. Even when I wasn't at my best, I played well. And I kind of had been looked at as a bit of a captain or a leader on the team. And when I school, I kind of just was getting tired of it, of playing and stuff. And I got, I just got tired, but I still was kind of looked at in that way. And but just like seeing people around you try their best and doing what they wanted to do and doing their best and then looking toward you to lead them into doing their best. Like it wasn't even a responsibility that I took. I didn't take it lightly, but I didn't focus too much on it because it just was kind of a natural way that I was. And so I, even now in my adulthood, I think about teams a lot and also sports probably saved my life. I'd love to hear more about that in what way. I come from a... I mean, I can tell you about my background now, but I come from a single parent household. My mom was an alcoholic. She had chronic health issues. And I had a godmother. I called her my aunt. She was my godmother. That she was in my life for the first two years of my life. And then she left for four years. So it was just me and my mom, who, again, alcoholic. She had to go into rehab. I've heard stories of social workers trying to take me away. I was taken for a bit while she was in rehab when I was very young, like two or three. 
my godmother did come back when I was about six and she had her own family and she adopted a couple of kids, but she kind of like just made sure that me and my mom stayed, stayed sure my mom was very young when she had me as well. So all of this is to say that I often look back because if it weren't for sports, I would have not stayed straight. I would have veered most likely. And it was because of my godmother. And so I bet she had multiple conversations with my mom. I was like, you've got to get, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to make sure, you know, this kid is playing sports or in this school or whatever. My mom couldn't afford it. I went to private Catholic schools, but I did work study. And I picked gun off from underneath desks and you know, she might've asked her siblings for some help. And I think they helped a little bit and I thrived in it and I thrived in the attention. I thrived in the community. I thrived, the community, not the community of sports, but like, this is kind of like, it's sociological. We need people around us. And every day I went to school and then I played sports after, and there was just smiling and laughter and success. And it does feel good to a kid who kind of just goes home at the end of every day and kind of hangs out not really around family or anything like that because my family wasn't really around. So, Well, thank you for sharing that. And it also sounds like your godmother also sounds phenomenal because she cared about you, but she didn't have to as deeply as she did. She didn't have to. She didn't have to. And I often, like if it weren't for my mom, I wouldn't be here. If it weren't for my aunt, I wouldn't have survived. Well, how did that early childhood shape you? I can probably assume it made you resilient, but what other ways has it shaped you into who you are and who you're evolving into being? That's a very, very big question. I probably, I don't want to go any further without saying I'm transgender. So I was assigned female at birth. When I was 42 years old, I transitioned, announced that I'm trans. My pronouns are he and him. My name is now Henry. Growing up, I was, as a little girl, I knew I liked girls very, very early on, right? And so I'm also mixed race and my mom was white. And so I've got sexuality, gender, and racial identities to deal with, without a father, with a 21, 22-year-old mother when she had me, and having to navigate this in the 70s. I was born in 1973 on my own the best way that I could, and I knew air quotes, you know, being gay back then was not very accepted, you know, at all really, right? And you had to be pretty brave to be out. And I didn't understand any of that. I didn't have anybody to talk to about that. So I kept it all inside. And so a lot was kept inside and I just wanted to belong. And I just wanted people to see me. And I didn't even know how to act to be seen, you know, and I blame nobody. This was nobody's responsibility right i don't kind of have those things like you should have done this or this person should have done that no like this goes back to what i told you about being able to turn around and say i had these like people who are on my path along the way at different points in my life my mom always being there i know my mom loved the hell out of me i know she did the best she could i have abandonment issues right i'm working on that a lot now especially in the last few years it's like how does that impact my current life and, you know, I work really hard. I just, I want people to like me, but who doesn't want people to like me? But like, I'm getting to a point now where I, I also don't kind of care. And with, you know, with work, with personal, I just want to make sure that I'm doing the best work that I can do while also uplifting people. Because in the work that I do, I'm really in a position where I do get to support an entire reporting staff. And I really do thrive on that. And I really do like, it, and I think I'm good at it. 
and having ideas and just like wanting success everywhere. Maybe not for myself. Myself successful, yes, in life. I am still here. I am doing well. And I don't take full responsibility for that either. I just didn't really get the language to turn around and examine myself until later in life. Yeah. I just kind of thought every day had to just get through the day. Gosh, Henry, just as a parent myself, it's hard to hear, you know, just even as a young child, just trying to get through the day. That's really difficult. I'd love to go back to where you talked about, you know, knowing early on that you liked women or girls at the time. And, you know, in the 70s, when did you come out and what was that process like? I came out as a lesbian, <laughs> technically, I guess, when I was 18, but I never officially came out to my mom. She's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, okay. I found out later that a really good friend of mine who I've known since 1980, she's like, yeah, my mom asked me. And I was like, I would have been nice if you had just told me when I was in high school, but I really struggled. I thought about suicide every day and when I was in high school, because that's when I really started to have the feelings. But honestly, like... I knew from a young age that I did like girls. And I also can tell now, I know now that that was mostly, not mostly, I think it was genuine, but like, I believe that that was also me looking for a connection, you know? But I do remember these feeling memories of like excitement and all of that stuff, but it wasn't sexual. It was just like, look at me, like somebody look at me. And I really do think it was along those lines, you know? and. I, didn't, I couldn't understand that as a kid, but I do believe those feelings were real and I'm sending her feelings throughout elementary school and then high school and then just trying to be in relationships are hard in general. So Yeah, relationships are hard. One of the things, Henry, when you and I were chatting before we started recording today that I'm very appreciative is you had said that you are open to discussing both your professional and your personal life, which I thank you. There, our listeners will benefit from it. But you had written an article called Dear Mom, I'm No Longer Your Daughter. It's deeply personal. It's very well written. It's also very hard and heartbreaking to read coming from the perspective of being a parent or just being a human, what that must have felt like for you to write that essay and go through life. Tell me about when you first realized that writing was something that you were just not only good at, but maybe it was some sort of expression that some people don't express themselves that way. When did you first realize that? That's an interesting question. There are very few things that I can confidently say that I'm good at. People say, fake it till you make it, all that stuff. You're sitting in front of a classroom, you're sitting at the head of a meeting and you're writing this meeting and oh, I'm feeling insecure all this, all this stuff. I know I can write and I know I can write well. I'm no Angela Davis, I'm no James Baldwin, I'm no Zorniel Hurston, obviously. Only those folks are, right? But talk about idols though, we go back to that question. There is a picture of me, I think I'm like five years old and I'm like laying on my stomach and I have a hat on backwards. And my chin is rested in my left hand and I have a pencil in my hand. And I remember the first short story I wrote when I was a kid about the seven was how, how St. Nicholas became Santa Claus. And I remember thinking back to an assignment in third grade. I just popped in my head relatively recently. Even the memory makes me happy and the assignment was the teacher gave us this photocopies of this like kind of let's call it an ogre is an example and it was like those old back in like 1981 the outlines were purple the assignment was color that in and write a story about that and that assignment brought me so much joy like i loved writing and i never wanted to be a writer as a profession because writing also tortures me it also takes me forever 
I've written drafts of memoirs. I've written short stories. I have this blog that is probably, if it turned into a book, it would be a 700-ish page book. But the piece you referenced, yeah, that was very easy for me to just put out there in the open like that because it made the story not necessarily about me, but about my mom, but also about me. But I do communicate very well via the written word. And the best type of writing I do is personal memoir type, autobiography type writing. I can write a story about a startup but it'll take me three months to do it. And I will put it off and put it off and put it off. And I just won't want to do it. So I leave the journalism and the reporting to the extremely talented people I work with. And I'll just edit their stuff. You touched a little bit about journalism and writing and writing for work and about a startup. So for our listeners, tell people what you do. So I am the head of editorial operations at TechCrunch. And I've been there for 10 years and I started there as a copy editor. But because I've been in media for, I think the number is 27 years now since I graduated from college. So I've been in media that long. And it's for the most part always been tech media. I started magazines. And so because I had all that experience and I started my career when the internet was like, it was 96. And so one of my jobs was taking all of the articles from our print magazines and putting them on the internet for free. And I'm sure everybody wishes they could go back in time and not do that and charge for them. But because I had so much experience working with developers and working with designers and working with graphic artists and like other editors and writers, by the time I got to TechCrunch, I found myself working with marketing, business, events, the developers. I would find the contacts there and work with audience development and social media and all those different types, plus edit, plus writers, right? So editorial operations is just kind of like all of it. And I just kind of like sustain the infrastructure and support the writers. So my boss, the editor-in-chief, he can go do his thing. So our managing editors can do their thing and make sure that we're covering everything that we need to be covering and doing it well. And so I'm underneath all of that. I'm not going to say they rely on me, but I know how to get things done, where to find the answers, make things happen, implement ideas. And really, as I'm telling you this, I can just imagine a lot of scenarios where somebody has an idea and I figure out a way that we can make it happen as well. And then I'll edit. I'll copy edit. I will manage the podcast producers because I launched our podcast network like five or six years ago with one of a uh, former producer. And so just kind of all of that stuff, that's what I'm into. And it is hard to define exactly what it is I do. I don't wake up and say, okay, I'm a reporter. I'm just going to report the news. I do all kinds of different things like that. Well, you know, TechCrunch, you're covering a lot of different trends across technology. But before that, I'd be interested in trends that you're seeing across newsrooms. You know, what is the state of, you know, covering technology for journalists today? And where, how do you see it changing or evolving or maybe staying the same? Yeah, it's interesting because TechCrunch, I think it was 16 or 17 years ago it launched. I was living in New York at the time. Somebody else might say something completely different to me, and that's totally fine, as I see it and as I have seen it. It used to just be like your little tech section. And it was like, oh, let's just have, let's just cover tech here. But like tech, and we all know this, tech is everywhere. Tech is even just kind of a boring word at this point, right? Because it touches everything we do, whether it is the way you and I are talking right now is tech, obviously. But like people cover Zoom. Our grandparents know what Zoom is, you know, you know what I mean? And so like social media blew up, right? In the late aughts. I, I remember Friendster. So like, which was before MySpace, but like all of it is cultural 
and all of it does have an impact on us. We use tech every day. So it's like, that's how I've kind of seen it. So like people actually want to be specifically tech reporters to not just cover the technology and the gadgets and stuff, but the business behind it, venture capital, which is what TechCrunch's main focus is. And at the same time, though, we are expanding too, because we used to just cover startups and venture capital. That's what we're known for. And we will continue to do that. We'll continue to excel at it and lead it. But also it's like, oh, we need cybersecurity. We need enterprise reporting. We need culture and platforms. We need developer platforms, like all of those things. And it's like, it's everywhere. And so you've got really good people at the beginning of leading this coverage on a day-to-day basis. Having to keep up with how fast everything changes too, because that's also changed. It used to not be that way. And it's like, a, you should be a tech CEO, wouldn't really be paid much attention to, but now they are. People know names. It's really, it's kind of fascinating. And again, I just go back to sociology. It's sociological, all of it is, right? And we just like watch how we all are interacting with one another on a daily basis. You're talking about sociology. Like if you took a snapshot of where we are right now in technology, I mean, news keeps coming up about layoffs. You know, how do you see that impacting, you know, the industry in general over the next year to five years? Do you see that this being a time of innovation or what do you see coming? First of all, the layoff, it's media and it's in tech and it's in startup. There are startups who are hiring, and but it's like probably specific. They're probably hiring for specific jobs that maybe others can't do or somebody else can't do, right? And so then you got immediately asked, and, and honest, and sometimes these layoffs, they're last minute. You don't like up that morning and think you're going to be laid off. And it's just really, really hard, especially when the headlines are coming, especially when businesses led by billionaires are laying off upwards of 15,000 people, right? That can be hard to take in, right? And so I don't want to make it sound like, oh, well, we'll, it'll, we'll rebound. There's a ton of people who are out of work right now. That's just the bottom line. But, you know, historically, we obviously know that that might turn around, but then I don't know what's going to happen next time. I mean, what ended up happening with the pandemic, right? This is very, very, there are other people that I could talk to you about this way more intelligently than I can, but people hired. We Let's go on a hiring spree. The pandemic, people are home, people are focusing, people are spending money. Okay, cool. Well, that's why they're all laying people off. That's one of the reasons we're laying people off right now, right? I'm wondering if it's like, <laughs> can you trust going to a startup again? Can you trust going to a big company again? Hopefully, but there needs to be something that changes, in my opinion, about the way people are hired too. We talked a little bit before we even started recording about trends, but are there any little stories that aren't getting enough coverage in technology? Some kind of new platform that's being built, Do you like healthcare, some really interesting things are happening. What are the areas that people should pay more attention to? Because that is going to be, we're going to see a lot more development in those areas in the future. Well, you mentioned healthcare. That's interesting because, I mean, people are aging. Right. And then healthcare is such an issue here in the States, at least. I mean, you know, AI is just doing its thing. You know, chat GPT. I was just talking to a colleague the other day and it's just going really fast. I haven't played with it. I've watched my colleagues play with it. I also think people, and I, I almost want to roll my eyes at myself for saying this, but people really do power the world, obviously. Right. But I mean, I think that they're just kind of like taking their stake in it right now and really making it focus on the people. And also, I just want to say with venture capital, investing in historically underserved communities like Black founders, women of color, female founders, that is where I think a lot of the 
if I can call it innovation and investment, it sounds so dumb, but like people come on, open your eyes and invest in more places. Because there are a lot of people who aren't being listened to, who know, who can see what might be coming up. And it's just like, pay attention and listen. There are people out there who are looking for investing and who do want to help trans people access healthcare, who do want to help single mothers access support in education or whatever it is. I'm obviously not a startup founder, but it's just disheartening to continue to see these headlines where Black founders aren't being funded. Not my area of expertise here, but I would wonder also with, you know, a lot of VCs really tightening their belts where, you know, in the past it might have been really, really easy to raise funding. Is it going to be even more difficult being a minority, being someone who is in a niche of helping underserved communities to raise money? Or do you think that would not be the case? And I do hopefully, because I have had these conversations with my colleagues. And if you look at the world, in my opinion, the world needs things. Like we need, you know, the healthcare, we need the education, we need I don't know. We need things to be easier. We need the world to stop burning up, right? So, like, again, that's another example. Climate tech, like, all of these things are intertwined. Health tech is sports, right? All of that, right? Without being inside the inner workings of venture capital, I don't think it's necessarily going to get worse, but it certainly needs to improve. It's a big generalization, and there are a lot of amazing ideas out there, and there's a lot of money too. And it's just about making sure the two meet. Well said. So looking at your background on your Zoom screen, I can see a cricket bat. Cricket bat? Yeah. Holding a cricket ball. Tell me. Oh, and you're holding. I didn't even realize you're holding a ball. So tell me a little bit about that. Why cricket? Cricket. I used to, well, I played sports. I love sports. And so I lived in Australia for a few years. I moved there at the end of 2007. And I was there for two and a half years. And... Every year they have this Danita Hobart yacht race. And I figured, I was like, let me do something that the Australians enjoy. Let me get into something that the Australians enjoy watching. And I turned it on and it's just boats just sailing. And that's not interesting to me. To others, I get it. Fine. Do you? But that was not interesting. But then I changed the channel and what was going on was cricket. I'd heard of the sport, but I always had this feeling that it was like old white guys in all white, just kind of like hanging out in the grass or something like that. I had no idea what it was. And so I turned it on. And the first thing I watched was a 2020 format. And it took me a minute. I was asking questions and I was like, oh, I get it. And I just fell in love with it. And I do like the complexity. And my favorite format is test, which takes place over the course of five days. And a friend of mine got me that bat from a vintage store here in the Bay Area. And then there's a couple of cricket balls just next to it too. So yeah, and I've, got, I've collected the cricket balls. And I subscribe to Willow TV and, I, and ESPN Plus is now showing cricket. I just think it's a great sport. Hmm. And what was it like working in Australia for a little bit? It was cool. It was cool. I was an editor for a year and a half. And I ended up being, I was editor-in-chief of like three magazines at once. There were trade journals. One of them was called Electronic News. One of them was just called Food and the other one was called packaging. Both of those were manufacturing. I knew nothing about food manufacturing. I knew nothing about packaging. And I just did it and it ended up being a blast. The packaging folks love their industry. And it was just really interesting seeing how all of that went down. But it was, they love their vacations. They believe in getting off at five. They have their superannuations that you get automatically when you work in Australia. 
but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, you know, from the time we've spent together on this call and then also earlier, I get a sense that you're someone that's energized by new things because, you know, even in your role today, it's not really just one specific vertical. You're doing a lot of different things and it sounds like going to Australia, packaging, food manufacturing, who would have ever thought? All that to ask, what do you think is next for you? What's going to energize you in sort of your next, do you have an inclination of that? Two quick things come to mind. One of them is I want to do a bit more, this is going to sound so banal, traveling. There was a time when I didn't travel. I was like, I hate traveling. I didn't travel, but I hated it. But I want to go on short trips. I want to do a lot of domestic traveling. I want to go see a baseball game in every single baseball stadium in the US before I die. And so that's kind of my goal. And the other thing though, too, is I don't do New Year's resolutions at all, but... Something feels different about this year. I talked a little bit earlier about how I haven't been writing much at all. And I do believe that there is something that I was afraid of approaching internally. And I think that's what has prevented me from doing it. And so this year, I am working on developing a writing practice. And I just need to sit down and write. I'm literally having conversations with a friend of mine. It's like, well, can I just start writing my stories? Because I've done that. I have a 250-word draft of my memoir. 250 page draft of my memoir. I have stories all over the place, but sitting down and like making them happen and reaching out to an agent to try to have that conversation to try to get something, I don't know. And then I start to tell myself, oh, there's so many memoirs out there of people who've had such infinitely more interesting lives than I have or have much better things to say than I do. And then I saw so that voice gets into my head. So I try to overcome that voice. It's not exciting per se, but it is something that I do feel differently about, actually. I would push back on that and just say, if some of those people had that same thought with those memoirs and didn't write them, people would wish they were out there. So you never know. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And you know, this podcast is about aging with purpose and legacy. What does it mean to get older for you and to age with purpose? I do think about death a lot. And I think about being prepared. I don't have a significant other. I don't have kids. At this point, I know what is going to start to happen is that I'm going to desperately want to make sure that I'm leaving something behind. I don't feel that yet because I kind of don't think I know that I'm 49 because I still feel like I'm whatever 30 means, right? And I know I suspect that in the next couple of years, something is going to happen. I'm like, okay, you need to get going. But I'm also the type of person where it all blends at one point. And it all just kind of comes together. And I do believe that I have been making the effort in just about the last year to work on myself, to figure out why I am the way I am, to figure out how my childhood and how taking care of my mom as a kid is translated to being an adult and taking care of people and taking care of myself, which I don't believe that I necessarily have my whole life. And I think right now what I'm doing is focusing on making sure that my motivations are sound. And that my motivations to do things and get things done are for my improvement and for the sake of myself, not from a narcissistic or a selfish way, but to make sure I'm good so other people around me can be good in my presence. There's nothing selfish about taking care of yourself, you know? I think it's an extension of the love you have for the world and other people is taking care of yourself. And it's a lifelong, I think, journey for people as we get older. I struggle with it too sometimes. But final question, what does the word just legacy mean to you? Legacy to me, I want it to mean something present, in the present, not 
when I die, there's going to be, oh, yeah, of course I want everybody to remember me. But legacy to me means honestly, like when I go to bed every night, like did I do something that day? Even if I did do something that day, was it amazing? Did the people I hung out with, do I know that they went home with a good feeling of themselves? I played basketball yesterday and I hung out with this friend of mine and it was fun and we laughed and we had a good time. And I'm assuming he went home and was in a good mood or something like that. You know what I mean? And so I don't want legacy to mean that I have to write this book or books before I die. It's just, it's kind of like a spirit that you carry with you. And so when I'm having a meeting with somebody or when I go meet somebody or I have plans with somebody, they know what they're going to get. Not really like, it's more of just kind of like the spirit that just kind of keeps going and surrounds and defines you. So in my case, me, my spirit and what I have to bring every day. And I really do work on bringing the best version of myself. If I'm not in a good mood, I try to figure out why. I try to stick with it, try to move through it, and try to be honest with people. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Legacy. I very much enjoyed speaking with Henry and I personally learned a lot from his resilience. If you'd like to check out his work, visit TechCrunch.com. Again, that's TechCrunch.com. Thanks for tuning in to Legacy.